This is our Suburb Trends report for August 2021 and we'll be looking at where prices are moving across the country, either up or down, and why they're moving. In this episode, we'll also be discussing the tightly held index and a deep dive into why some suburbs and property types are more tightly held than others. Welcome to The Elephant in the Room. This is the podcast where we love to talk about the big things in property that never usually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent, co-host of Foxtel's Location, Location, Location Australia and author of Auction Ready. And I'm Chris Bates, mortgage broker. And I'm Kent, the data geek. Before we get started, I need to let you know that nothing we say on here can be taken as personal advice. We always recommend you engage the services of a professional. Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on the website as well as download our free full or forecaster report, which experts can you trust to get it right? Theelephantintheroom.com.au Real estate agents love to tout a tightly held pocket in their advertising copy. It's all about scarcity, of course, and we know this is a key factor in price growth. This month, we've asked Kent to see what we can learn from looking at the tightly held index. Now, Kent, did we invent that term a month ago? I think it's a great one. Let's let's own that. <laughs> We're owning it. We have just created the tightly held index. So tell us about your research into this. What have you found out or how have you found out? Yeah, so what I did is I took a, a one-week sample of properties that have been listed for sale from last week and I whittled that down to just over 300 that I could pair it up to a last known sale. Now, you've always got some data blips in that stuff. Okay, so so once you allow for some data blips, what I then do is I crunch it through a pretty simple model, so it's not as if I spend days on it. It's just a quick and dirty model to try and identify what are some of the more important fields that identify or predict years owned. And I think there's some Captain Obvious in there, which mm-hmm. is the number one property type apartment. So that's <laughs> <laughs> so so in terms of field, you know, field importance in terms of the overall model, what we can see is the the ones if you're owning an apartment, they're the ones that are turning over more rapidly. Uh, and if you're owning houses, especially if you're in some of these rural remote locations, they are the ones being held for the longest period based on last week's sample. So have you got any idea of how much the apartments or, you know, non-detached, I guess, townhouses as well, are you grouping them with apartments or are you grouping them with houses, well, like townhouses? Yeah, I, I group them with apartments, but, you know, yeah. there is an interesting thing. One, do you remember how we looked at that um, report on REA? Um, you know, we we, yeah. we had a squeeze at that, and 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 you, if you look at the top five suburbs that they had in that particular report, it was a really interesting thing. There's a place called Princess Hill on their top five, which was owned for 21.7 years on average. What was really interesting there that throws a lot of this stuff out and kind of says maybe there's a lot of spurious noise in all of this stuff, but it was a 50% townhouse, so it's. Not something that you could kind of say in that top five list, is it driven by it being all freestanding homes? Well, Princess Hill, Victoria, seems to throw that whole theory right out the water. So Princess Hill is actually uh, is near Carlton North in Melbourne. So a lot of those townhouses will be sort of little cottages or little nice frontages that are all linked together. So they must, they're not those typical sort of new townhouses you see, but I imagine it'd be all those literally all those nice, beautiful frontage that are 
sort of linked. What do you call those, Veronica? What do you call them in your uh, like not terraces, but they're sort of single level sort of. Yeah, kind of like cottages. Well, they're all stuck together, even if they're only single level. I still call them a terrace. But even I sort of distinguish and say a modern terrace if it's not a Victorian terrace. But it, but like every rule in property, though, there's an exception, isn't there? <laughs> and I guess if you focus on the exceptions, you can learn a lot. But the reality is that sort of, you know, the 80 20 rule, the 95% rule. You know, that's an anomaly by the sounds of it. We normally talk about the anomalies at the end. (laughs) (laughs) We've jumped the queue. And I will say too, you know, if this topic, you know, you're thinking, why are you talking about this? And obviously tightly held index for us is really important because it does get to the nub of capital growth, really, and which is a really important concept when it comes to property investment. We are going to also go back to Kent's uh, favourite metric a little later in this episode and really do a review of all the capital cities where they're up to right at the minute as well. So just bear with us because we are getting to that. So back to the tightly held. So Princess Hill doesn't necessarily give us, that's the exception to the rule. Can we just sort of write it off as a glitch, as an anomaly? I think so, yeah. So what what are some of the other things that you discovered through this though? Yeah, so the variables of interest were number one, if you're in an apartment, that's the big driver. And they, and we, we spoke about that last show where a lot of those do turn over. Uh, they're, mm. they're, a lot of them are owned by rentals, but equally they're used as a stepping stone, et cetera. Yeah. So we've all been down that road. So mm. number one, by a long shot, is if it's an apartment. Uh, the next variable of interest was inventory levels. So the, you know, the, effectively the, the, where the inventory level and where that market was about a year ago. So that was interesting. So what that tells me is if the market's hot or cold, is a driver for whether somebody sells their property according to this small sample and simple model. So that was interesting. So you're saying from that that areas, okay, so given a year ago was sort of, COVID land, you could almost, and we're still in COVID land, you could imagine that in Melbourne, for instance, there wasn't much activity. So if you're comparing a property now to a year ago, I'm a bit confused actually. I'm- <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, so what, we all, what we're doing here is we're just talking at an abstract level to saying mm. what are things that go into the, into a mm. into simple model that are making, making trying to make sense of a lot of crappy data. And yeah. so, so, you know, and, and, and the, the big standouts obviously in it, when you, when you do a list and you, you sort them from year zone down, you get some insights into it. But yeah. by and large, this is not a clean, simple thing. So are you saying then that or are you suggesting that tightly held can be a function of a crap market? Is that what you're suggesting? It can be a function of a crap market or a booming market. And right. we saw um, an mm. ex- example of that was one that, that we did the analysis of a little bit more of a deep dive for an article I did for the AFR. And we found that a number of places where things had really rocked on in terms of price increase there was a higher proportion of ex-rentals hitting the market. So, you know, they've got some of these interesting things. So you've got scenarios where people sell for a reason and and those reasons Mm -hmm. could be extra hot or those reasons could be extra cold and I'm in financial trouble. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, as markets are looking like uh, getting better prices, it encourages more people to sell, right? So you'd expect as markets rise, it encourages people to sort of take their profits, not just investors, but you know, people who want to do upgrades. So, you know, as later on in booms, you, you expect to see supply increase in 
that would encourage people who have been in the properties longer to sell. Is that sort of what you're seeing is that people who are making bigger profits are getting encouraged to sell? So the hotter the market gets, the more uh, likely people are going to sell. Well, it certainly was the case in, in one particular location that stood out, which was near you, Chris. It was up at, at Manly in the, the Warringah pocket where there were a number of ex-rentals being uh, sold, yeah. people cashing in. So that was that was rather interesting, which kind of dovetails into that next variable of interest, which is tenure rented. So the higher the uh, rental tenure, the, the, the more influence that has on the model, i.e. how many years owned. So obviously that's an inverse relationship. This marries up very well with the Fool of Forecast reports. Everybody knows my favourite report, but maybe the <laughs> tightly held index may take over because, you know, in terms of loss-making sales, you know, the number one loss-making sale, you know, is in apartments uh, versus houses. And also there's a turnover of investor stock versus owner-occupier, so therefore investors are more likely to incur a loss. You know, so there is there's some correlations with this. But tightly held then, there's two aspects of tightly held I'm, I'm sort of seeing here. One is it's a function of financial pressure, but the other one is how good the asset is. So can we separate those two things out? You know, is that making it even more complicated? Yeah, I, I, look, I, the answer would be yes. It, you t- you'd need to spend a bit of time on it. But uh, here's a really interesting one that highlights that. Tarrant Point, I would call a, a fairly blue chip suburb, a small one. And that was number one in that REA survey. Mm. And that was the number. So, and, and that was owned for 22.7 years. So I think that's a good example. And that was 54% fully owned, no, unencumbered, no mortgage. That was, yeah. so that's a standout. But, you know, when you look at that guy, say, ah, I'm onto something here. And then you suddenly go down their top five, you know, owned suburbs for houses and that doesn't apply. So to your <laughs> point, Veronica, you know, there are nuance, nuances mm. and nuances on top of this. So it, it ain't easy. And do you know Tarrant Point? I do. It's a small, small place. I used to work in Tarrant Point years and years and years ago. Um, I worked at Toyota and <laughs> that's where the head office was. And I don't even know if it might still be there. So there's quite a lot of industrial property in Tarrant Point. It's, I wouldn't say it's very nice, to be quite honest, but it is on the Georges River. So there's a lot of waterfronts and, mm. you know, and so the family type home and that sort of, that type of property I would imagine would have a longer tenure than, say, you know, your normal bungalow. Would that be a fair assumption? Well, tell, me, tell you a question I've got. How long has the Tarrant Point Bridge been installed for? Because before mm. that it was the Tom Ugly Bridge, right? And that area would have existed. A lot of those houses on the waterfront there would have existed back in the day before that heavy commercial build happened in and around Tarrant Point. Probably got knocked down potentially to be, to be, I don't know, who knows. But, yeah, that bridge... Quite like the Tarrant Point Bridge myself. It's a nice, you know, I think they call it a single span uh, um, <laughs> as opposed to the Tom Uglies, which is one of those old 1920s, you know, the riveted, bolted type numbers. <laughs> That's It is quite interesting. I don't, it all my, I can't remember not having a Tarrant Point Bridge. 
<laughs> in but your 30 years. That's in my it. 30 years. <laughs> Definitely more than 30 years old, but anyway. So, yeah, it's more than 20, it's more than the 21-year average, that's for sure. <laughs> anyway, so, we digress. Yeah, so, but it's an in- interesting suburb. So when I look at the uh, the aerial image, uh, the satellite image, you can see that, you know, it's, it's a, it's a, a suburb of two distinct markets and, you know, the waterfront is a very dominant thing in and around the, uh, uh, the, the Georges River there. So, I mean, with this tightly held English, I think that's what's interesting about it is the more likely a property is to turn over, the less scarce it is, I guess, and the more, less likely it's to turn over, the more scarce it is, the harder it is to buy. And so what we're sort of saying is the apartments are more likely to turn over when the market's hotter or there's more people selling, then that's likely to – so if you've got very low inventory, then you're likely to have very low inventory in the next sort of year as well. You're also saying if it's got a lot of renters or a lot of investors, it's more likely to turn over. And then also if there's a, a big portion that are uh, fully owned, you're saying that that increases the likelihood of turning over or decreases the likelihood of turning over? It really varies location to location. So as you're saying that, I've picked out an anomaly. Now, I know we're not meant to talk about anomalies till the end, Chris, but it goes to the <laughs> point of what you just raised. Let's pick on one that you know quite well. Marrickville, yep. Sydenham, Petersham, SA3. From the listings last week, uh, the average the, the average length owned was 17 years. Now, when you mm. look at that, uh, it's a it's a, an area that's got a lot of rentals and it's got a fair amount of units. Mm. Mm. And it you know and now again small sample size, but it's interesting. There's been quite a lot of recent unit builds in recent times, and I would say that it's quite a big gap between sort of recent proliferation of unit construction and sort of back to the 1960s and 70s when a lot of the buildings would have been built is my guess there. But also ethnic groups. So Marrickville, that area, you know, was very, you know, very populated with a lot of Greeks and obviously then the Vietnamese came after them. So potentially the ethnic makeup of an area would have something to do with it as well. Mm. Well, it's, it's it's height. I mean, it's one of the hottest markets around, you know, with, you know, housing markets. It's 1. Mm. 1. 1.25 months of inventory. So it's that, yeah. you know, that, that whole SA3 pocket is one of the hottest parts of Australia right now. So, yeah. Really? The, huh. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Just smoking hot, very hard to find. You just don't have enough. You just don't have enough listings to play well, with. Literally bought a house in Marrick for a couple of weeks ago and it was very interesting exercise because the, uh, this particular client, she'd been on the market, well, she'd been looking for close to a year before engaging us and, and obviously this past 12 months having been looking on your own mm, has been painful. pretty demoralising and mm. and to finally get to a point where you say, right, well, I'm going to get some help because this isn't getting any better. So she did that and we sat down and we do what we call a getting started session with every client at the beginning to really focus their attention on the possibilities for their search so that we're not chasing, you know, rats up drain pipes or, or you know, <laughs> looking for needle. No, we are chasing rats up drain pipes. We're not looking for needles and haystacks. And she was on the cusp of not being able to afford a house in Merrickville. Like that's where her budget was. It was right on the line, almost a decent house that is. And we managed to pick one up. But, yeah, the price increases in that in Marrickville in particular because half of Marrickville isn't as flight noise affected as the other half and 
Then you got Sydenham and was it Sydenham SA3? Petersham, that's your SA3, yeah. Yeah, and Petersham's not as affected as Sydenham, but Sydenham is highly flight noise affected and that's very much seen as entry level really into the inner suburbs of Sydney. It's the cheapest, I think, from memory, and, and I don't think it's probably changed. The last time I looked, you know, St Peter's, Tempe, Sydenham had the lowest median house prices. And so it's that's really this affordability drive. So anyone who's decided that they don't want to go to a unit, they still want a house, and it's like last ditch, last, last, last hmm. ditch effort is to go there. So I think that's one of the reasons why it's so hot. That southern end of Newtown too gets a bit of – we when we uh, – my wife and I lived down at Iredale Street down in a unit, a brand did new you? unit down that end. And no, could, so did I. You know, my first ever property was in Iredale Street yeah. and it was in one of those units. You wanted you, to, it was, we we're probably neighbours, but we never didn't hilarious. know any neighbours. So <laughs> I was that guy with a satellite dish illegally on his balcony. Ah. Um, um, but we used, to, <laughs> we, used to, we used to see people's faces as they flew down to land their planes, you know. Oh, you're on the other side of the building to me. <laughs> We could, we could. It is a funny pocket right now, though, when you've got no planes, right? Um, mm. And uh, you've got the excitement around the metro coming in that sort of pocket, which is a bit of a game changer if you're walking distance to that metro. I think it's something that we're, people don't realise until it's built and they go, wow, this is actually amazing. Because I think the other metro isn't that amazing yet because it doesn't really link up with the city. But that whole pocket has got a lot of hype behind it, obviously with the West Connects potentially finishing as well and links to the new airport so it's it's yeah i think that the plane is a huge deterrent but there's not enough planes in the sky no, moment, great time so. great time to sell it's yeah a, great time is. to sell and I, i'm reminding clients at the moment about the flight noise to say look you know don't don't get lulled into a false sense of security yep. here. <laughs> you know, it, this will change and you'll be going oh my god it's a big difference so <laughs> this is an interesting statistic for that sa3 the median price has increased by 160k for houses in the last 12 months. Now, how many people would would earn 160k a year mm. after tax? What percentage is that? How do you express that as a percentage? Well, I'm going to make some small talk and calculate it really, really quickly, <laughs> talk amongst yourselves, and, pre- and, pre- and pretend <laughs> and pretend that I already had it prepared as I as I. <laughs> <laughs> There's my two questions. Whenever anyone says, "Oh, I made I made a hundred thousand dollars or whatever on on their property," I said, "Okay, can you express that as a percentage and over what period of time?" <laughs> it's usually, there's not many that come back actually with a good result after after that. But anyway. it was eleven point one percent. Yeah, but I knew that. that I already yeah. knew that. I was just testing myself. That's not that. That's not that huge. Uh, n- no, not that huge, but it's it's well behaved and smooth because it's at that SA three level. So mm. you know, sometimes when they're a bit bigger than that, I always like to scratch scratch around and and, and challenge <laughs> it. But one hundred and sixty k is not small either. No, and I, I think this is common. This is what starts to happen: is the curve starts to flatten out mm. as you get above that million dollar mark. Right. So, what are the things you're seeing here, Kent? You're seeing obviously the apartments, the Amount of stock, if it's tight, that means it's likely yeah, to be tight in the future. There's some, of the, there's some of the drivers. But, again, this is not a, a perfect model. So, yeah, 10-year rented was one. Then we went into fully owned was the other driver. Yep. Inventory crept back in again as in what the inventory was last month. So the first inventory variable was what it was a year ago and the right. inventory le- level as of what it is now appears. And then we move into that stock standard census stuff, like moved in the last five years or moved in the last year. 
Mm. So there's some of the interesting things. So what that that often appears in a lot of the models, and that moved in the last few years does have a lot of correlation to rentals, Captain Obvious, but yep. uh, equally what it also means is a lot of vulnerable people have just moved in terms of you know, financial vulnerability or you might have just moved because of job or whatever. So it's a very tenuous, you know, risky period. And, and if you buy a house, typically mortgage insurers and lenders know that the, the, the most of your risk is in the first two years. Mm. Yeah, the danger zone, isn't it? Yeah. So, but is it lots of people moving to a suburb? It's also a good thing, right? Especially if it's new buyer pools that weren't in that pocket, but then now they can afford to buy and they're buying in those pockets. So, you'd also want to have a, a bit of a turnover of new money coming into an area. So, is it a lot of people moving into that area a good thing that weren't there five years ago? Well, I think the COVID rules have really shaken the tree a bit and, and what you've got, and I'll pick on local experience here in, in these commutable regional locations or your Newcastles yep. because we have to mention Newcastle. Yeah. Is, is it's that, been 20 know, minutes and he's been, finally well, mentioned Newcastle. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, there's people coming in and they are spending well over the odds. So, yep. you know, the, the listing price is, is being blown way out of the water. They're outbidding everybody else. Yep. But equally then they come in and, and you look at it, the DAs at the moment are just phenomenal. So, you know, I've set up for the building approval alerts. And it's going bing, bing, bing every day. So the, I think what's happening is people are buying, but they're also renovating or knocking down. We won't talk about that one right now, Ken, because that's what I want to talk about next month is the renovation factor yeah. in price growth and, and see if we can find some data that supports how much of an impact that is in that. So, you know, obviously people moving to the suburb, you know, that are new people. Do you think that's a, you know, do you want to ha- buy in areas you know, or areas that are more tightly held have lower number of people moving there in the last five years, or are you finding that a lot of people moving there is also encouraging people to hold on? Or is it just moving around as opposed to moving there from somewhere else? Um, I don't have an answer. Mm-hmm. I'm going to say that I don't really know. There's some some areas that just don't sell because they're small. So a number of these suburbs that we're looking at are just small suburbs. So, you know, they're tightly held. A lot of them are, are older and more established as well. So it's really hard to pick on a single variable and give you a yeah. definitive, meaningful answer. I can't, not on this one. And the hard part with that one as well is that a lot of that, you know, there's a portion that are going to be investor stock, investors are renters. A lot of renters move around a lot more frequent than five years, right? And so it could be a great suburb, but, you know, just because there's a 30 or 40% of the stock is owned by investors, so they're renters, then and they're moving around, that's going to make this number look a lot bigger than it probably and the, the reality is a lot of the houses aren't moving, right? And so that that affects your data. But the last year is an interesting one. If if a if a suburb, if everyone's moving around in that suburb a lot in the last year, I think there's got to be a, a correlation in terms of risk there because if a lot of people are moving in and buying in that suburb, that means everyone's taking out bigger mortgages, everyone's sort of in that danger zone that you spoke about, Kent. So yeah. I feel like that one's definitely one that would be interesting to sort of watch and how much impact that has in in terms of how often people are selling. Yeah, but I think there would be the exception where a lot of these people who cash out of Sydney and then move on to your Geelongs or whatnot, I think they lower the risk profile for many, mm, of, the, many of the suburbs. So, yeah. so it's a, a, an interesting thing. The rules have changed so much. We've never seen that degree of exodus before. The census is going to be interesting because we're oh. recording this the day after the census and 
as I was answering the questions, I'm thinking, so do you answer the some of these questions in the view of, well, if I wasn't in lockdown, this is what I would have done? Yeah, it's a big <laughs> impact last because night, I'm in lockdown, yeah. do I answer it as what I actually did do? And there's no clear guidelines in the census as to which was the appropriate because if I answer as in I'm in lockdown, then that's going to skew everything and you can't plan on that, you know, and if I answer, you know, as what I would have done had I not been in lockdown, then I'm not truly doing what the census asks of me. Oh, the, the impact is going to be huge on some of these numbers. For example, income. Mm. You know, we're going to see some massive shifts in income by geography. Mm. It's going to be fascinating. And then when you compare income levels, and I'm going to take I'm going to take a stab here and say income levels down. And then you compare that to this massive change in house prices over the last couple of years. Mm. The affordability stats are going to be extraordinary. Mm. Yeah, I guess there's two ways of looking at affordable multiple of income or percentage of income that actually is paying the mortgages and what that's it. And, you know, what percentage in that? It's at all-time lows, right? So you could look at it affordability two ways. That's the ideal. Income, yeah, yeah, it's really high. But as a percentage of income, what you're losing on interest and what the repayments are, it's ridiculously low because interest rates are low. So that's what's driving prices is the affordability of the mortgage rather than the affordability of the price of the place compared mm-hmm. to their income. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's pretty dangerous to be honest because you know, interest rates can move and that can easily flip affordability very fast from highly affordable to ridiculously unaffordable and Mm. then you get these real tightening and stress really. Well, then it's not tightly held anymore and everyone does start bailing out. (laughs) (laughs) But I I think with the affordability metrics, there's a lot of, you know, global uh, affordability ratios that just look at median price, median income. But ultimately you need to do what you said, Chris, you need to subset the data and say, you know what, it only really matters for the people buying. What's the income of the people buying relative to what they're spending on the property and what their incomes are? So I think, you know, rather than doing it at the whole, at the suburb level or at the macro level and everyone goes into into the measure, it should just be the people buying. Mm. Yeah, what debt they're taking out is the interesting thing. So if someone's supposed to buy something for $3 million, like how are they going to afford that mortgage? But what the person doesn't realise is that they've probably sold something for one or two million. And they've probably only got a mortgage of, say, one or two. And, you know, the, the reinvesting of profits back in property, that mental accounting is huge, you know. Like someone sells something, you know, at one and then they buy something at two and they pretty much don't take, you know, three or 400 grand of those profits and put it in their super or, you know, buy a share portfolio. They put it straight back into their next property and, and re-borrow. And the, the real thing that matters is, is what, you know, p- percentage or multiple of their income are they borrowing and if they're, Lots of people are borrowing at six or seven times their income. That means they're taking on lots of debt. But if lots of people are borrowing at, you know, three or four times their income, then that shows that they're not stretching and really pushing to the limits. And so that's always a, a interesting thing to see the credit flow and how much risk people are taking on really. Now, Ken, it's been a few months since we actually looked at your favourite metric, which is the inventory by city and also vacancy rates. And as we know, every city and regional town has been experiencing price or house price growth for the past year. And anecdotally, we've been hearing about landlords cashing in and we've been talking about that in the tightly held index, especially in places where there's been negligible or negative growth for many years. Are you seeing any signs of change, Kent? What's happening across our capital cities? Yeah, so there's some 
massive falls in inventory being driven primarily by massive drops in listings volume. So typically, if I were to go through, I'll go through them in order, but I'll, I'll pick out a couple of standouts. Obviously, the biggie here is the change in the regional New South Wales. So inventory levels versus where they were a year ago, minus 51%. So halved. Mm. It's halved in the last 12 months. So yeah. the implications of that, are phenomenal on prices, but equally, and as we move on to some of the other metrics for regional New South Wales, it tells me that there's a bit of a worry for those people who are living in these towns that they're already there. They're not moving in from Sydney or wherever. They're going to be crowded out. So this is you know, economics 101 crowding out. So it's, it's some tough times for, for a lot of families on the lower rungs in regional New South Wales. So 51% there. So the other end of the spectrum is an interesting one. Darwin's only decreased by 7%. Now, the way I've sliced and diced this approach is a rolling 12-month average. Now, you can do this a few different ways, but this is how I've done this particular one, is I've done it on a rolling 12-month average. And typically, we're looking at the, uh, you know, the inventory here for Greater Darwin has not fallen anywhere near the degree of all of the other greater capital cities. And their price growth hasn't been anywhere near as strong as well. Is that sort of it's similar? Yeah, yeah. So I'd probably say right now what, what we're seeing is things tapering significantly in Darwin. So it's uh, not going to have the growth, certainly well, not having I the growth. I thought there was sort of increasing inventory in Darwin because prices had started rising and there was more inventory coming on. That's a good point. So- Inventory falling is a surprise to me. I actually expected you to say that Darwin was actually rising. <laughs> oh, yeah, like it's still, I mean, inventory levels uh, tightening up obviously tells us that, you know, the market's still got growth in it, but it's at 4.35 months of inventory now based on my an analysis of the, in terms of the housing market. Hmm. What was it a year ago? So if I go back a year ago, I'm just going to zoom across my spreadsheet here and make small talk while I do that because <laughs> it's all in the one big, big sheet here. So inventory levels a year ago were 4.66. So yes, they've fallen, which obviously puts some pressure up on price, but it doesn't compare to some of these other locations. Go, to, you know, like let's just pick on regional New South Wales for a minute. Yeah. Yeah. 2.23 months of inventory today, but it's dropped by 51%. So mm. it's, it's huge. And then, you know, go to Sydney. Sydney's close to two now. Let's just round it. It's, you know, two months of inventory. So if nothing nothing else listed today, if there was a moratorium on, on new listings, you'd have nothing left to sell in two months' time. <laughs> Which it just feels like that all the time, to be quite frank. <laughs> but what about Perth? Yeah, so Perth has been a bit of a, a sleeper. It's done rather well. So, you yep. know, things are improving across what we call Greater Perth. So it's, it's dropped by 29%, which is not as high as the other cities, right? The, the percentage drop, it's okay, it's good, but it's, you know, it's not in the 40s where so many of these are. And it's down to 4.31. So it's moved into what I would classify as a, a seller's market, not a strong seller's market, but it's mm-hmm. a seller's market. Now, you know, things were a little bit different. You know, going back a couple of years, it's been a stagnant market for many, many years. Yeah. But I guess the impact of lockdowns is is in this data, right? And, you know, they're not really having the challenges as the eastern seaboard. No, I think some states we've now seen that we were critical of because we were all arrogant here in New South Wales, their <laughs> yeah. lockdown strategies have worked and we failed and here we are with 
people that we know being directly exposed and a very high risk of the Hunter Hospital, John Hunter Hospital, being overridden by massive number of new cases here in Newcastle. So good on you in those other states. So, I mean, I guess this is leading to you know, lower stock levels, which means lower number of properties to potentially purchase and dramatically lower than they were 12 months ago. So it's much harder to buy a property where there's less choice today than there was 12 months ago. On the other side of the coin, what we're seeing is you know, another influx of people wanting to buy. You know, I think this lockdown, is, the longer it goes on, the more sort of people come to us and sort of say, yeah, I'm really keen to do this once things loosen up. And it's a lot of the people who were thinking about it earlier in the year and finally getting, or late last year, are finally getting their documents together. So, you know, and if rates are likely to stay lower after these lockdowns because of, you know, reduction in sort of employment growth, less pressure on, you know, wages rising because of, you know, unemployment rising, et cetera. Uh, unfortunately, you've got all those key ingredients again. And so my worry is that low stock, increasing demand and also appetite to take on debt because rates are low and are likely to stay low, is going to cause a similar thing to what happened at the start of this year. Is that what you're sort of seeing as well, Veronica, like an, an increase in urgency again? Yeah, I am actually. And, uh, you know, and a lot of people that are coming on our books who really have been looking for some time or yep. have been thinking about it and then thinking, oh, shit, we missed the boat and, okay, we're going to do it anyway. And so there's all of that sort of, thinking that's going on in the background. I'm I am actually quite surprised at the amount of people we've got, you know, we just had to put uh, start the waiting list again. Low listings also correlate with that fear of missing out because we've also seen, you know, clients who are using buyers agents, you know, some of the stuff that they're starting to consider is very low quality, you know, and they're just like the patience is hard to be patient right now because nothing else is coming on. It really is. You're looking for, and you're looking for a, a way to buy something rather than just being patient and so low listings also encourages that urgency nothing's coming on and fear of not going to get something and the longer that goes on the more that sort of rises and so that's what this lockdown's doing is causing people to get purchase anxiety so yeah it's pretty worrying these and also then you've got the people uh, in regional New South Wales Kent like if you've got very low listings uh, and you have to get leave your home for some reason those, a lot of those locals would be super stressed, right, because they can't compete with the city buyers moving down there and so they're having to potentially leave. Is that what you've... It is, it, it, yeah. So we will move on to and we'll talk about vacancy rates and, yeah. and, and rental data in a moment. But what the real call out here is I would hate to be trying to buy a property anywhere in Tasmania right now. Mm. Um, you know, across Greater Hobart, I count an average of about 330 houses for sale, dropping 42% compared to this time last year. Wow. So, you know, you're trying to do some statistics and stuff and analytics for, for uh, Hobart. You, the suburbs, forget trying to do anything significant at a suburb level. Now it's getting to a point where you, you really can't do anything at the regional levels because the data is so thin. I, and anecdotally, once again, I, I've come across a number of people who are moving there from New South Wales, from Sydney. Yeah. It's all this, you know, oh, one day I want to go to Tassie and it's like, well, why not go now? I also heard anecdotally that there's quite a lot of mainlanders who've, t who've been leasing properties in Tasmania so that they can use as an excuse to escape lockdown and, you know, so that could be contributing to their problem with vacancy rates as well. And that's just, it's quite hideous. It's so entitled, but anyway. Yeah. We're absolutely seeing people go back to regions again. Um, I thought that it would run out of steam this year. I thought mm. that late, like last year, 
a lot of people went, prices got more expensive and they said, you know what, I'd rather just live in Sydney or near the capital city like Melbourne rather than do the commute and I'm not sure about return to work. But then this started this year, that absolutely changed. Everyone said, no, we just want a nice apartment. So I thought, oh, maybe regions are going to start running our steam. Mm. But this lockdown, because the apartments and in Melbourne, the houses have got that they want have gotten up so much, yep. they're like, it's still much more affordable in the region. So we're getting this second wave where people are like, I can't see a, a solution for me in the capital city long term and I'll go to the regions. And this lockdown is encouraging people to – because a real frustration, right? You're not getting the benefits of city life right now. And so mm. people are like, I'd much rather, you know, have land and be looking at, you know, this green pastures rather than, you know, looking at the, the concrete jungle we're in. And so we're seeing that at the moment. It's a real shift where people are, you know, having the encouragement to sort of follow their, their dream they've always had. But, yeah, it's, it's, a, yeah, it's a funny one at the moment. Not only that, though, there's been much more publicity this time around about entire buildings being locked down, particularly in Melbourne. Mm. You know, there's a case, you know, they got the lift spread around the building and then they just, you know, the whole building, that's it, you're stuck for, you know, you're all quarantined together for 14 days or whatever. Yeah. And I think with that hitting the media as well, I've got another client who just moved out of an apartment just said to me that the most dangerous time of the day was literally when the doors of the lift opened the ground floor, Mm. (laughs) you know. (laughs) And it's, I think that's, I feel like that's more more in people's minds now than it yeah. was the first lockdown. And, of course, I'm talking Sydney-centric here because we've only had two lockdowns. Poor old Melbourne's, what, up to number eight or something. Mm. You know, but I think that there's a there's that resurgence of that concern about that more communal living. And on that, I've got no idea how those co-living spaces are functioning in lockdown. Yeah. Like yeah. you're stuck in, in what, a 14-square-metre room or something. You can't even use the common areas. Mm. That would send you nuts. Well, we will cover that, I think, in a, a, a future uh, because there's a lot of New South Wales planning is coming out with all sorts mm. of strategies to effectively say if it's if it's medium or high density, guess what? It's all in community. So yeah. I'm going to give you a, a, some really alarming rental data right now to highlight oh, or back up what you just said. So, <laughs> yeah. let's, so thanks, thanks yeah, for the positive. The rest okay. of New South Wales or regional New South Wales, whenever there's whenever the vacancy rates are below one percent, I call it a crisis, um, as mm. you know. So we're down to regional New South Wales is down to 07 percent. Oh dear, and yep. and trending lower. So, oh, so that's yep. you know, and then we've got three other locations that are at zero point eight, all below one percent. What are they? Regional Queensland, mm. regional South Australia, regional Tas. Wow. And just like enlightens a little bit on the vacancy rate. I know it might be a bit amateur, but I think it's just when you talk about sort of what these things really mean. You know, under one percent means that you know basically under one percent of properties are available on the market right now to rent. Is that sort of the easiest way to explain it, Ken? So what I do is the metric I use is I say, has this property been advertised for 21 days or longer, i.e., you know, it's not a normal transition advertised for a couple of weeks, filled, gone, I've accounted for it as a, mm. you know, as an accountant or a, a landlord. So what we've got here is, is properties that have sat on the market for 21 days or longer and typically right. – um, I'd probably argue now the only ones that are staying on the market 21 days or longer are grossly overpriced. Mm. Yep. Yeah. So it's very tough in the regions right now. If you do lose your tenancy or you're moving there and you want to try the area before you buy, well, that's impossible. Or if your landlord ups your rent on you dramatically, that could you know force you because they could rent it out for a lot more because there's other people desperate to rent. 
yeah, you don't want to be at the mercy of that as well at the moment, which I'm sure is happening in the rental region markets, right? Yeah, some big big percentages. New South Wales, on average, at capital city level, the um, median house price jumped by 10% compared to same period a year ago. But there's some others that have jumped up quite high. One of them is Darwin's jumped up by 22%. So whilst the... Huh. Whilst the housing, you know, the inventory level, the sales market looks like it might be starting to ease off, I just still see things pretty tough in that rental space. And then equally, you've got the next couple of biggies have been Greater Perth and rest of WA, both have increased uh, 13 and 40% respectively. That's very scary. I, I, my mind can't even really wrap around what do those people do who are looking yeah. for somewhere to live. You know, I, I actually can't even imagine how awful that must be, particularly if you've got, you know, you've got kids. It must be horrible. And, look, in a couple of weeks we've actually got an interview with Michelle Adair. She's CEO of the Housing Trust in the Illawarra and talking about the affordability in a broader in a broader sense, not just first home buyers. And we will be talking about that because we do have a problem in this country exacerbated by these vacancy rates. But also I wonder, you know, with lockdowns, certainly the the old Airbnb market, you know, so of course no one's travelling at the moment and, well, there's very few people travelling and having holidays. And, yes, it was great when we came out of lockdown last time around, we're like all bolted out the gates and, you know, you couldn't. You couldn't get a place. Now all those places be sitting there vacant. You know, we had a we had a, a week away booked up up northern New South Wales, and we've had to cancel that. That was Airbnb. So, you know, I wonder if that stock will start entering. In. I mean, there's an obvious demand for rental stock. I wonder if any of those will actually turn. Say, you know what? I want a, the certainty of a a longer term tenant. I reckon they'll flip straight back though when the, the borders are open and tourism mm. starts to rise. Well, they can't if yeah. they lock someone in with a lease, but it all, all depends on their own financial situation, mm. doesn't it? Yeah. Right. Okay. Well, that doesn't sound great. It Basically, inventory levels are falling everywhere, even in Darwin still. <laughs> uh, well, that, yeah, that depends. Uh, you know, I've got an anomaly here. But I'm going oh. to wait until you I thought you'd given us all of no, them. Okay, no, give us one. your anomaly. I've got my anomaly is if I slice and dice the data slightly different and I do a 90-day rolling average, I'm seeing an increase in inventory in Darwin City and Darwin suburbs. So, yeah, yeah. So So people are being a little bit more picky, I guess. uh, I'm kind of maybe put it down to there might be just an increase in, in listings activity and the demand just hasn't kept going the way it was. So... Mm, Watch this space. I think things might start to be easing in Darwin right now. A lead indicator. Yeah, I mean, when the market's super hot, right, the stuff over 90 days starts to sell because people are a bit desperate or they take them off the market potentially, but and they think, oh, maybe I'll sell it next year because, you know, the market's getting better. But when the, the 90 days plus or six months plus properties, listings are starting to accrue on the market it's probably those two things isn't it Kent that people aren't able to buy there's not enough buyers for all these properties or that people are being a bit more picky is that sort of the the two that you sort of see I haven't scratched the surface to identify why all I'm doing is observing what and and the what tells me that if I sample the data and only count what's happened in the last three months and then compare it to what happened to Mm. the three months before that it tells me things have changed and and that change is that the market's starting to, to end its bull run potentially. Now, you know, it's a watch this space, but equally what I'm starting to see in some select locations is where, you know, listings are nudging up just a little bit, 
and some some of these areas have not missed a beat in terms of demand keeping up with it. So you know, inventory levels are still going down across most of these locations where listings have nudged up. But by and large, we've seen massive falls in listings volumes. Mm. Now, we interviewed Jared McCabe a couple of weeks back and really wanted to get a sense of the Melbourne property market and uh, I guess look at some, you know, potential, I guess, looking into the crystal balls to what we might be experiencing in Sydney when we come out of lockdown, God knows when. Now, he did say, though, the inventory, the auction numbers in winter, this winter, which has been interrupted by a number of short and sharp lockdowns, but their auction volumes have been huge, like three times, I think he said, what's normal for Melbourne winter. Is that coming out in your data at all? I haven't looked at it, but I've got a great story that someone was telling me yesterday that people are drunk bidding because they're, they're doing online auctions. Oh, and they're boozing up. And, and oh, getting, my God. Yes, of course. And, so that's, that's, a, that's my little fun story because I didn't want to finish on the dower note. But, yeah, so people are, people are bidding at auction half full of red. Well, I mean, Veronica's always said she, she uh, can see the, the bidder that, uh, well, she tells her clients don't drink the night before before mm. they go to the auction or she knows the hungover one that's a, a yeah. bit bidding on the Saturday morning. But, yeah, I guess it's if the auctions are at 5, 6 o'clock and you're yeah. in lockdown and, uh, yeah, the bottle of wine is uh, calling you. <laughs> You're going to get these problems, right? <laughs> Just on that too, I mean, we've, we interviewed Jesse Davidson, auctioneer, a couple of weeks back. If you want to understand yeah. about the online auction, go back and listen to that that episode. Great episode. And he wasn't drunk. No, he wasn't drunk and <laughs> presumably not drunk when he does his auctions. But I, um, So I've been participating and observing a number of online auctions and it's very interesting. There are two main types that I can see. I haven't actually done a Zoom one yet. The ones that I've done have all been a, a situation where you've got the auctioneer just on a screen and calling the bids and you can see the bids sort of rolling in on the uh, as they, they roll in, you know, on a sort of a, a tick, you know, leaderboard or whatever. And then the other type is the eBay type bid uh, auction where there's no auctioneer. It's just people are bidding. And then as it gets within the last five minutes of the auction and there's a bid, the timer resets. And this is interesting because my suspicion is that that is way worse for buyers than when the auctioneer is calling it. So the mm. auctioneer calling it still does various things and the agent will do various things that they did before in live, right? So the the agent will be on the phone texting or calling the people that have registered that haven't bid yet or the ones that have stopped bidding or whatever. So there's all that sort of happening in the background. Yeah. Um, and the auctioneer is taking instruction from the agent as well, uh, in, as well as sort of calling those bids that come through. So, and they're working it and they just, they hold out like we bought a property the other night and uh, I don't know how long we sat there while that auctioneer just dragged it out while the agent was clearly, you know, canvassing all the other the bidders. Yeah. And then finally they and they knocked it down to us. Um, and you know they're doing their job. They're getting the most amount of money for the property. But we've been we've observed a couple of other ones which have been online without an auctioneer. One went for now. I, I'm going to ask you, yeah. <laughs> one, oh God, am I right in saying it went for seventy five minutes? Yeah. The bidding. And so you're saying like it, you're thinking you're going to win it, right? You put an offer of 1.55, right? Mm. And then that gives you another, that gives all the other buyers five minutes. Yep. And so at four minutes 50, the other one comes Bang. in at 1.556 and you're yep. like, oh, 
bugging out another five minutes. Um, mm. And so it can really drag out. And, uh, and have another sip of wine. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, come yeah. on, darling. One more. Let's do it. Yeah. Um, well, five minutes gives you that full emotional, right? Mm. Like, oh, we've lost it. Yep. Maybe we haven't lost it. Can we get more money? Or can yep. we make that call? Should we do it? Should we do it? Oh, yep. All right, let's just do it, right? Yeah. Um, in a heat of an auction, you haven't got that time of the emotion. No. You go, you just go, oh, no, let's not do it. But you don't get that feeling of, well, what happens if we do, don't bid right now? And you get that thought process, which might take a few minutes to Well, it's beckoning you. It's calling yeah. you. Come yeah. on. <laughs> one more bid. One more bid. Come on, give it one more go. It, yeah. it's, it's really interesting because I know that, I know Jesse, he said, you know, he didn't think that that type of auction worked better. I'm well, thinking the auctioneer, though, yeah, isn't it? it's, 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 slightly biased, <laughs> but I'm thinking it does for the vendor, not for the buyer. I hate them. I absolutely hate them. And um, even even observing the other auctions where you've got the live auctioneer, you know, I've had to have the, the chat with my clients about what's in what's left in my tool belt that is normally in my tool belt when I'm on on in a live auction, which is not in my tool belt when I'm online, mm. and so. My two, you know, I'm limited in terms of what I can do, and but I tell you one thing I've really noticed is the difference, the difference between the way I bid versus how most bidders bid. Most bidders bid thinking this bid, I hopefully I'll get it for that bid, right? Mm. Hopefully I'll get it. They're they're bidding with that as their intention. I'm bidding with the intention of stopping everybody else bidding. Mm. You know, so they're bidding with hope hoping nobody else bids against them, I'm bidding to try to stop them bidding. And it is subtle but, you know, it's just occurred to me while I was sort of observing one of these auctions the other night, what's going through the mind of the people as they're bidding, Mm. you know? And I know what my clients are saying to me when we're bidding, you know, because I I now have – a earpiece and I'm listening to the auctioneer and I'm also got my, my client on speakerphone. We, we're discussing it and chatting just like you would if you're, you know, husband and wife and you, or a wife and wife or a husband and husband, and you're sitting there in front of the screen yourselves, you know. Mm. It, it's it's really interesting psychology. I'm going to have to write an extra chapter for my book, I think. <laughs> yeah. Are they uh, also playing videos of the, the property and the pictures? And- in, in, the, in the eBay style one, yeah, it just is on this scroll. Of, yeah. of the property. Subliminal and, messaging, like this is yeah. what you're losing, this mm. is the lifestyle, I'd be ramping that up. Whereas <laughs> the actual when the auctioneer is live, mm. um, there's not. It's just the auctioneer yeah. standing there, you know, a little bit awkward at times, but they're just showing their ability to talk, you yeah. know. Even well, I you should would be using your that. stats, Kent. <laughs> well, I was, it's so funny you should ask. I was just thinking, you know, we should. it'd be great to do an analysis to say is the face-to-face auction – Yielding a better return, or, mm. is the, or has the online methodology surpassed it? Because it's certainly more efficient. Mm, it is, and but yeah. you know what? You could only do that in a hot market, though. And so, what I was sort of thinking is that if you were the agent yeah, sure. and the auctioneer, you'd be thinking, okay, how many have I got registered? Okay, I'd flip and I'd drop the auctioneer if I have over X amount registered. Ah. You know, if you've only got yeah. two or three, you need that auctioneer to get in there and, and fish and pull them and coerce them into, into bidding. And the other thing too is a lot of people say, oh, my God, I can't believe it went for that price, only two people bidding. It's like you don't know how many people are registered online, mm. you know, and this is one of the things that I don't know now that I used to know. And I'll ask the agent, but I'm at the mercy of the agent telling me whatever they want to tell me, which is what most buyers are when they mm. do in normally. And, you know, I, I like to think they tell me the truth, but I'm fairly dubious that they all do. 
you know, so I don't have that fullness of information. It's not that transparent. It'll be very interesting. Cooley come out with a Cooley index every month and they do tally up the average amount of registered bidders. And they only compare month against 12 months ago. So that's really hard to to make a comparison. But I think I sort of, yeah, it'd be very interesting to track that on a monthly basis before and after. The other question, though, is is what impact it would have if it becomes a digitised model. Mm. Will that end up in the hands of a few corporates rather than the analogue model, which is in the hands of yeah a lot of businesses mm. it's scalable it's absolutely scalable but i i do think it's market dependent i do yeah. think that- and property dependent right yeah. like if if it's not a great property and the market's hot you might only still get one or two bidders on mm. it and that's not enough to get the competition going and yeah um yeah, but if it's, you know, six people bidding and you're seeing all these different people bid, you're like, oh, God, we're not going to get this. Let's just mm. go for it. And you could even overlay it with stats, right? There's only been three properties like this sold in the last 12 months yeah. that are on these streets and are you willing to wait four months or, you know, there could be so much pressure on you to, to <laughs> encourage you to bid with stats as well plus the photos. So, so next month, Kent, I'm really keen to talk about the renovation impact into median house price growth. You know, like so a suburb was, say, 1.5 and now they're all selling at 2 to 2.5, let's say. But, you know, what portion of that is the renovation impact? Have you got any idea how we could figure this out? Um, You mentioned it earlier or am I sort of dreaming? Yeah, no, what we'd have to do is we'd have to narrow it down to a couple of focal focus suburbs and what we do is we'd actually pull out individual properties that have sold and we'd compare and contrast and look at their history to say, has there been a DA or is it new and what did it last sell for, et cetera, et cetera. So we're trying to find areas that are being, uh, you know, regentrified areas where there's lots mm-hmm. of this stuff going on. As I said, uh, you know, up here, there's just so many crappy old weatherboards that are being pulled down at scale. So, you know, suburbs like Could we look at that? Is there a DA data? So the percentage of properties that have lodged a DA or a significant DA in the last 12 months, like is there any way to get that council data? Yeah, so a lot of the councils now publish that on maps. So uh, Newcastle City Council do it. So there's a a map that they publish, but equally there's a a website called Planning Alerts, which I just love, right? But you can go and search that as well. So I prefer to probably use the map and then pull it out and then say, well, how many of these properties have had a DA? So you can look at the history of DAs. Mm. And then what you try and do is do the before and after image. So it's a, a bit of yeah. it's not a it's not a simple spreadsheet kind of, you know, cut and paste job. It's a bit of bit of effort. But if we do it for a couple of suburbs and it's not a yeah, you know, then we could come up with something meaningful. So we could have a percentage of properties that have lodging DAs would be an interesting one. And then percentage of properties sold which have done a DA in the last, you know, couple of years, right? And then you could see that you know, how many people are actually renovating and selling, right? Because that's what's going into the medium prices, the ones that are selling, right? Exactly. Um, and there's flippers. There's Even though the, tax, yeah. the taxation system hasn't changed yet in New South Wales, we've got a, a, a family friend or a, the, the, the family of, of one of my son's friends. This is what he does. He fixes and he flips. That's all he does. And, and they're it's a good big re- to be flipping in. They're big renos. They're big renos. Yeah. yeah. Well, if it's your home... 
can. It's all tax-free. So uh, there's a lot of money to be made if you are uh, in the last few years, whether it's in the next few years is a different question with building costs. Uh, <laughs> definitely not cheap. Thanks for today. It's been a great episode and I uh, hope you all got a lot out of it. Thanks, Kent. Thank you. All right. We'll see you next month. Okay. If you're looking to buy your dream home or an investment property in Sydney's inner west, eastern suburbs or North Shore, my team and I can help you buy without regrets. Reach out via my website, gooddeeds.com.au. If you're looking to buy your first home, thinking of upgrading into a new one or purchasing an investment property anywhere in Australia, my team love to carefully guide you on this journey and most importantly, get the finance right. Reach out via our website, wealthful.com.au. Thanks for joining us. We'd love to see you again. And remember, don't be a dumbo.